So according to some recent research from Pew Research Group, 30% of Americans now identify as nuns. And no, this is not the little old lady in the black cap, the Catholic nuns. This is non, N-O-N-E. And where they get their name is that when they are surveyed asking about their religious affiliation and they're given a choice of options, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, whatever that may be, there's always an option for none, non-affiliation. 30% of Americans now identify as none. This now makes them the largest demographic according sorted by religion in America. Larger than Catholicism and larger than Protestantism. It is also the fastest growing demographic in America. In 1972, when this data was first available, it was at 5% of Americans identified as non. Today, 30% of Americans identify as nons. I'm curious to know, if I were to ask you the question, why do these people stop going to church, what you would think about. Of these 30% of American people that are no longer affiliated with any kind of religion, why do you think most of them stop going to church? The answer is very simple. They've moved and they've never found a new church. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be here with you. I am excited about today. I'm excited to be here with you, um, to see you again. I'm, I'm curious to know, how's your joy level? High. Great. My joy level is high. I'm excited about this message and about this time that we're going to spend together. Um, I trust that you are as well. If you recall, in the last message, we talked about joy. And if you remember that, joy, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but eye contact and the sound of somebody's voice. So right now, let's raise the joy levels a little bit. Turn to the person next to you, not your spouse. Look them in the eye and say, I'm glad to see you. Oh, I love, I love that sound. So, as you recall, we have been, um, in, we are back in our series on the statement of faith. We're not going to talk much about that. If you recall, we were in Article 8 and Article 9. Article 8 on the nature of the church and, and that we are the called out ecclesia of God. And then Article 9 is on the mission of the church. How should the church relate to those outside? Jesus has entrusted to the church the stewardship of the gospel or the good news. 
Now, if you recall, in the last message, we kicked off a mini-series, if you will, that we're going to spend some time in that I'm going to call uh, Full-Brained Christianity. And we're drawing that primarily from the book called The Other Half of Church. And so we're going to do a little bit of review. We're going to catch up on on what we talked about. Um, But maybe just note here that in the next several messages, I'm not necessarily going to reference the statement of faith, just for the sake of clarity and um, keeping it simple. At any time, though, remember that the, the, this series of messages fits under what we believe in Article 8 on the nature of the church and Article 9. So if you recall in the last message, we started that series looking at, um, as, as the big picture, looking at John chapter 17. And I want to look at that again because I think as, we, as, as Pastor Layton just shared and, and as we think about what happened with Jonathan's yesterday, this passage, um, I, I just think it's so important to keep in front of us. It's kind of the lenses with which we are looking at this series. John chapter 17, starting at verse 20. And this is Jesus praying in the garden. And he's praying specifically for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them known to your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in you. This is a passage that is fascinating for me because you've heard me talk about it before. You're going to hear me talk about it again. How do we even know? Do we even know how much the Father and the Son and the Spirit love each other? If we think about think about it in the context of when when Isaiah tells us in chapter 40 of Isaiah to look to the heavens, remember, and we looked at how vast, immensely vast the heavens are, that is how much higher God is than we are. Stars beyond our comprehension. And then God says, the way that we love each other, you also love each other that way. And as you love each other this way, the world will know who I am. I am convinced that if we are going to have effective 
transformed lives, this passage is foundational. How do we love each other? Remember, we put this together with Matthew chapter 28. Remember the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. If you recall, we had looked at these as a first and second thing principle, right? How we love each other, how we relate together is the first thing. And then out of that, it's imperative that we are reaching out, that we are uh, giving, connecting, building relationships with those outside. Evangelism outside the context of loving my brother is simply the transfer of information. And remember, in the last message, we had looked at, um, I had shared a little bit of history on Gallio, right? Um, and how that through the Enlightenment, the way that we have uh, the Western world, the way the Western world looks at transformation or discipleship is that we look at it through the lenses of, of, of knowing truth, choice, and power, those three things together equal transformation. In other words, I give you truth, you have a choice to accept it, the Holy Spirit empowers you, and bingo, there's your transformed life. However, what that has fostered is simply people that are giving information, that are giving truth. It might be true information. Often it is true information. But outside the context of relationship, it is really difficult for us to actually have transformed lives. So evangelism outside the context of the body, of loving my brother, is simply the transfer of information. Likewise, loving my brother without the goal of making more disciples is not loving as Christ has loved us. In other words, if we're all huddling here without conscious thought about those who do not know Christ, then we're also not loving as Christ has loved us. Because remember, if we're looking at John chapter 17, and if we're, if we're contemplating or, or if we're thinking about how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love, out of that love has flowed redemption, grace, and mercy for us beyond what we can imagine. And so... If we're loving each other with that kind of love, it is imperative that from us flows this same fruit. So, we have to ask ourselves a question. The question for us this morning to think about is, are we that kind of body? 
in light of these passages, what do we look like? When we, put, when we look through the lenses of these passages, what do we look like? Are we loving each other as the Trinity loves each other? Are we making more disciples? Which leads us up to our study on transformation. So, a lot of people want change. A lot of people would love to change the world, right? And it's Leo Tolstoy that says that everybody thinks about changing the world, but no one really thinks about changing himself. And so, if we're serious about transformation, it begins with me. It begins with you. Each of us has to look inside our own hearts and say, am I willing to change? Am I willing to own my circumstances? It's Dr. Paul Tripp that says that all of our relational problems, of all the relational problems that we have, I am the biggest problem in all my relationships. So, character transformation, according to Hendricks and Wilder in the book, uh, The Other Half of Church, they say that our character is determined by the subconscious instantaneous reaction to our surroundings, right? Remember, we, we, we had looked at some examples in the last message, and, you know, one of the examples I gave was how our response is when we're in traffic, right? And I'm just going to have to confess to you this morning that I have not, since the last message, I have not always responded the way I want. And that is a reflection of my character. And that's not who I want to be. I want my character to look more like Christ. And we believe that, that this is the call for the church to to grow into, as Paul says to the church in Ephesians, to grow into mature manhood or to the full measure of the stature of Christ so that we're no longer children and tossed to and fro. We're to grow up, that's Paul's words, in every way into him who is the head. And when we do that, this makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As we, the way I understand Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4, as we experience character transformation, that creates a body, that fosters a body of people that builds itself up in love that is attractive to those outside. 
Hendricks and Wilder say that loving our enemy is the ultimate test of our character. So if you recall, the, the other half of church, I know some of you have been reading this, also had mentioned emotionally healthy spirituality. I'd like to review the brain just a little bit to bring you up to speed. Remember, our brain is divided into left and right sides. On the right side of the brain is the, the relational side, and it is there primarily that we relate to who we love. It's our emotional reactions. It's our ability to be in touch with our emotions, to calm ourselves. And it's also where our identity is formed. On the left side of the brain, that's often more of what we think about as, as the mind or the brain. That's where logical thinking happens. That's where problem solving happens, where strategies are created and, and where language happens. And that's where most men live, right? <laughs> um, but we... we it's, it's in the left brain that plans are hatched and arguments are formulated, stories are told. However, character is formed in the right brain. Character formation develops out of the community of people that we relate with, which is right brain. So it's our loving attachments, the, the people that we do life with, the community that we call my people, it's those things that drive and shape my character. In other words, it doesn't work very well for me to simply give you truth or information and expect you to change. It might have some effect, but it works much better when we can see others model it for us. When our right brain is underdeveloped, in other words, we have low joy, we have no good relational connections, no loving community, we are going to struggle with knowing with having proper identity and having good character transformation. So the question that Hendricks and Wilder set out to answer is what fosters healthy character transformation? In other words, how can we, is there any hope for, is, is there any hope for my impatience in traffic? I believe there is. The first one we looked at last time was joy. Hendricks and Wilder described that as a sparkle in somebody's eye that conveys, I am happy to be with you. If you remember, we looked at a number of passages where we see that in Scripture, where, where God's face shines on us. 
Joy is primarily transmitted through the face, the eyes, and second, secondarily the voice. Joy is very relational. It's, it's that warm and fuzzy, in my words, the warm and fuzzy that we get when we, we've all experienced, you know, walking into a, a, a strange place and there's people there that we don't know and we see someone else that we know and we see their face light up. We've all had that happen and there's, if you pay attention when that happens, there's a warm and fuzzy that goes on. You see somebody that you know. We might have also had had this experience where we see somebody we know and they don't see us for whatever reason. And there's just a little bit of this bummer. That's experiencing joy. The second word that we're going to look at is hesed. And if I actually pronounce it right, the H has more of a uh, hard Chesed, chesed sound, um, if you say that right, um, I'll probably stick to chesed. That is a word that we've used here a little bit as a leadership team, but it's a, it's a Hebrew word for love, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to explain it to you this morning. I really would invite you to read the book. I'm going to attempt to explain this to you um, a definition is it is a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. This is a word that you bump into in the Old Testament a lot. Um, it is translated a number of different ways, which we're going to look at. Maybe one of the more familiar um, passages is in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. This is the ESV. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come to an end. They are new. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Steadfast love is the one Hebrew word, hesed. The King James Version says, it says it's the Lord's mercies that are not consumed. There in verse 22. Isaiah chapter 54, again, For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Steadfast love, again that word, hesed. Psalms 51, this is ESV. ESV often uses steadfast love. Other translations use Great love or loyal kindness, loving kindness, faithful love, mercies. Those are all words that different, different translators are trying to. And what, what I want us to see here is that hesed is a word that is really difficult. There, there really isn't an English word that is a direct translation. And so we have to try to string several English words together to, to try to communicate. And as we do that, in some sense, we lose the meaning of the word. In the words of Wilder and Hendricks, 
and I quote, Hesed carries the sense of an enduring connection that brings life and all good things into a relationship. And I, I, the way I understand it from Wilder and Hendricks is that where the English breaks down is in conveying the, the, the idea of connection or of, of provision. If we, if we do a word study on this in the Old Testament, often when this is used, there's the context, there is a context of a, a connection and God providing God's enduring, loyal kindness. Um, God is providing life. Interestingly, with that, one of the things that Wilder, Wilder as a neuroscientist, one of the things that him and his colleagues have discovered about the brain is that the strongest force in the brain is attachment. So our brain draws life, we draw life, from the strongest relational attachment that we have. Or, in other words, who we love or what we love shapes who we are. Think of an infant and a mother. There's an enduring bond there. There's a bond there that never entirely goes away. It might be broken. It might be not the way God intended it. But if we could really see into the lives of those people, there is a connection there, a longing for that connection of a mother and her child. And so our character is shaped and our identity is developed by what we are or who we are attached to. I'll give you an example, some sort of an example of what that looks like. Some of you will know that I was born in Canada and I actually am a Canadian citizen, so um, that's pretty cool, I think. Um, I saw... <laughs> I saw some shaking heads. <laughs> um, so my dad grew up in Canada, met my mom here in Wakarusa, and the first four years of their married life together, they lived in Canada. I was born there. And uh, so we would often, you know, growing up, we would, we would go up there to visit my cousins and my grandparents and they would come visit us and, and I wasn't very old maybe uh, you know five six seven years old I begin to notice that these people are a little different than we are um, you know just different ways of different you know they, they, they go to the washroom instead of the restroom I mean what's up with that uh, just just some things like that um, they really do kind of have a funny accent, eh? Um, just things like that, that uh, I noticed that there's differences, right? And then a little later in my life, when I was about mid-teens, I don't really remember how old I was, I realized that, you know what? 
if my dad would have, if my parents would have stayed in Canada, I would have been like them. And wouldn't that have been weird? That's what I thought. And I would have come to Indiana and visited the different cousins in Indiana. And I would have thought, boy, those people are the weird. So, and so early on, I realized that, you know, not just your family, but the tribe that we are a part of, and we'll talk about that more probably in the next message, but the, tri- the, the people that you do life with is really important. And so that attachment shapes who we are. So what I really, what I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really condensing a lot of information in the book. I would encourage you to read it. What I want us to understand, I want us to see this word hesed and think sticky. There's the idea, there's the idea that there's some attachment with hesed. And again, this is a word, a Hebrew word for love. But we can't just simply say love because our love is so watered down. It's, it's so dumbed down. So hesed is a love that is sticky. And Wilder and Hendricks actually, they also use the word glue to give some definition of this Hebrew word. It's a love or a relationship that is glued together. The other thing that's really interesting about the brain is that the brain has no mechanism or no way to part that relationship healthily. The only way that that relationship parts is when it's broken or torn. Think of losing a child or losing a spouse. Some of you have experienced that. And that's hesed. It's there. I'd also like to look a little bit at the Greek word agape. It's interesting that, you know, when we talk about agape, we talk about that quite a bit. We all know agape is the deepest level of love. That's how we would describe it, right? And I think when we think of agape, we think of a sacrificial kind of love. We think of what Jesus did on the cross for us, right? And I think, as I understand the Greek, that that is an accurate translation of the word agape. Interestingly, it seems like agape wasn't used much in the Greek language pre-church era. Phileo would have been a much more common Greek term for love. But as the New Testament writers looked for a way to describe what Jesus did, agape was something that they used. And of course, think they were also trying to, I, I had never thought about this, but they were also trying to translate hesed. How do we describe hesed in Greek? And so agape became the word that they chose to try to translate the meaning of hesed.
one of the, one of the one of the things that we that we see one of the ways that we see that is that you know think of often agape is accompanied by adjectives. Uh, Paul takes an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians to try to explain what agape is, what love actually is. Peter, in 1 Peter, verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. So he gives a, a, a string of adjectives on how we should love. It's not, he, he can't just say, agape, your brother. Rather, he says, love, agape, one another earnestly. I also want to look at some of Jesus' teachings, but in essence, primarily what Hendricks and Wilder are saying is that love is an attachment in the brain. Whatever gives us life is what we are attached to. And if, you re if we read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, whatever we attach to, it is that thing that we love. You see, it's, it's, it's for, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever we choose to love, we become attached to. To that thing. Let's think about the, the uh, first commandment. Matthew 22. Pharisees are, are testing Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he answers and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's on these two commandments that all the law and the prophets hang. What if we would read this passage thinking attachment or attach? You shall attach to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then you shall attach to your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's interesting as we think of, of these two commandments that Jesus says that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything else of the Christian life flows from these two commandments. And have you ever thought about it that what Jesus is saying here essentially is that there is no distinction between my loving my brother and loving God. In other words, we cannot separate the two. That is why Hendricks and Wilder say that the ultimate test of character transformation is loving our enemy. If we cannot love our enemy, we are not loving as Jesus has loved. One of the ways that we know that is, remember the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus, what did Jesus have against them? He had several good things that they did. And then he says, but this one thing I have against you, that is that you have left your first love. Well, love for who or what? Jesus doesn't say because there is no difference. We can't separate loving our neighbor and loving God. We cannot say that I love God and leave a broken relationship over here. 
John chapter 15, the analogy of the branch. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, not, do nothing. So I don't know of a stronger metaphor for attachment than a branch and a vine. If we are not attached to Jesus, no fruit. Jesus goes on to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I love this passage. These things I have spoken to you. Think of, think of loving Jesus, being attached to the vine, loving Jesus, loving our brother. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so, joy and hesed are reciprocal. In other words, if we have high joy levels, then we will also foster high hesed. Or vice versa, if we love well, if we have high hesed, we will create high joy. I will enjoy spending time with you because we are family. We love each other. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, if we read this passage in its entirety... We can't separate loving the Father, being attached to the Father, and loving our brother. The sap that flows from our attachment to Jesus doesn't dead end. It has to flow to others. So, how do we foster Hesed? So there's two principles I want to share. They're not black and white. You're not going to go home and do these things 100%. But I am convinced that if we practice these, we will have more hesed. And the first one is vulnerability. And I know I didn't really like this one either. But I am convinced that if we're going to love the way Jesus and the Father and the Son have loved, there is no room for otherwise. There are no hidden secrets. There is, why does Jesus, why does James say, the brother of Jesus, that if we pray and confess our sins, we can be healed? Because we are vulnerable with each other. Paul says to the Romans that our love should be without hypocrisy. The ESV says genuine. I think hypocrisy is a better translation there because it, it raises the importance. Hypocrisy reeks. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Remove the mask. See, I can't, if, 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 I, if you don't know me, if there are things in my life that are hid, you cannot love the real me. But when I become vulnerable and I come broken with nothing to hide, now, 
hesed can flow. No faking. You cannot see, you cannot love what we don't know. Listen to how C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis says that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. But it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. I think if we study Lewis's life, Lewis knew something about that kind of heart. To love it all is to be vulnerable. The second thing is empathy. Empathy to share the emotion or pain of someone else. If we're a family, then we treat the vulnerability of our brothers and sisters very, very carefully. Those are not things that we take lightly. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And again to the first Corinthians, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And you know, I think we saw this yesterday. You know, we care about Jonathan's barn. We build Hesed relationship that is sticky when we care for each other. When we rejoice with and we weep with, when we suffer together and rejoice together because we're a body. Because we love as Christ and the Father and the Spirit loved each other. We're not just an abstract group of people who happen to be here. We're the called out ecclesia, the church that has a mission. How well we love has a direct impact on how well we serve the mission of Jesus. In closing, I have another question for you. In light of 
John chapter 17, and loving as Jesus has loved, in light of Matthew 28, and going and making more disciples, in light of us being a family, of having joy, and having hesed, and loving to be together. I'm curious to know what you would think about why do, what's the biggest reason that nuns start coming to church again? So of this 30% of the population, some of them do come to church again. What do you think is the biggest reason that they start to do so? It's because somebody invited them. We have an opportunity. 30% of your neighbors don't go to church because somehow they've lost touch. Because somebody hasn't, they haven't had hesed and joy. And all it takes is for somebody to initiate a conversation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are God. Thank you that you have loved. Thank you that you've shown us how. Thank you that you hesed us. You provide for us. That your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your, your unending mercies for us are new every day. Father, I pray that as we leave from here, that we would, as we interact with others, that they would know that we have been with you. I pray that you would give us courage, give us boldness to take your name to the marketplace, wherever that is. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.